0: Chapter Ten of the Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hepgood. Chapter Ten. At the graft again. I spend my first day in New York looking up my old pals and girls, especially the latter. How I longed to exchange friendly words with a woman! But the girls I knew were all gone, and I was forced to make new acquaintances on the spot. I spent all the afternoon and most of the evening with a girl I picked up on the Bowery. I thought she was the most beautiful creature in the world, but when I saw her again weeks afterwards when women were not so novel to me, I found her almost hideous. I must have longed for a young woman's society, for I did not go to see my poor old mother until I had left my Bowery acquaintance. And yet my mother had often proved herself my only friend. But I had a long talk with her before I slept, and when I left her for a stroll in the wonderful city before going to bed, my resolution to be good was keener than ever. As I sauntered along the Bowery that night, the desire to talk to an old pal was strong. But where was I to find a friend? Only in places where thieves hung out. Well, I said to myself, there is no harm in talking to my old pals. I will tell them there is nothing in the graft, and that I have squared it. I dropped into a music-hall, a resort for pickpockets kept by an old gun, and there I met Teddy, whom I had not seen for years. "'Hello, Jim,' he said, giving me the glad hand. "'I thought you were dead.' "'Not quite so bad as that, Teddy,' I replied. "'I am still in evidence.' We had a couple of beers. I could not quite make up my mind to tell him I had squared it, and he put me next to things in town. "'Take my advice,' he said, "'and keep away from... "'naming certain clubs and saloons where thieves congregated. "'The proprietors of those places and the guns that hang out there, many of them anyway, are not on the level. "'Some of the grafters who go there have the reputation of being clever dips, "'but they have protection from the front office men because they are rats "'and so can tear things open without danger. "'By giving up a certain amount of stuff and dropping a stall or two occasionally to keep the flyman's reputation, "'they are able to have a bank account and never go to stir.' The flymen hang out in these joints, waiting for a tip, and they are bad places for a grafter who's on the level. I listened with attention and said, by force of habit, Put me next to the stool pigeons, Teddy. You know I am just back from stir. Well, he answered, outside of so-and-so, and and he mentioned a half dozen men by name, none of them who hang out in those joints can be trusted. Come to my house, Jim, and we'll have a long talk about old times, and I'll introduce you to some good people, meaning thieves. I went with him to his home, which was in a tenement house on the lower part of the first ward. He introduced me to his wife and children and a number of dips, burglars, and strong-arm men who had made his place a kind of rendezvous. We talked old times and graft, and the wife and little boy of eight years old listened attentively. The boy had a much better chance to learn the graft than I had when a kid, for my father was an honest man. The three strong-arm men, highwaymen, were a study to me, for they were Westerners, with any amount of nerve. One of them, Denver Red, a big, powerful fellow, mentioned a few bits he had done in Western prisons, explained a few of his grafts, and seemed to despise New York guns whom he considered cowardly. He said the Easterners feared the police too much, and always wanted to fix things before they dared to graft. I told them a little about New York State penitentiaries, and then Ted said to Denver Red, What do you think of the big fellow? Denver grinned, and the others followed suit and I heard the latest story. A well-known politician, leader of his district, a cousin of Senator Wetcoin, a man of gigantic stature with a pleasing name, I will say, of Flower, had an adventure. He is even better developed physically than mentally, and virtually king of his district, and whenever he passes by, the girls bow to him, the petty thief calls him Mister, and men and women alike call him Big Flower. Well, one night not long before the gathering took place in Teddy's house, Big Flower was passing through the toughest portion of his bailiwick, humming ragtime, when my new acquaintances, the three strong-arm workers from the west, stuck him up with canisters, and relieved him of a five-carat diamond stud, a gold watch and chain, and a considerable amount of cash. The next day there was consternation among the clan of the wet coins, for Big Flower, who had been thus nipped, was their idol. We all laughed heartily at the story, and I went home and to sleep. The next day I found it a very easy thing to drift back to my old haunts. In the evening I went to a sporting house on 27th Street, where a number of guns hang out. I got the glad hand and an invitation to join in some good graft. I said I was done with the rocky path. They smiled and gently said, We've been there too, Jim. One of them added, By the way, I hear you're going up against the hop, Jim. It was Billy, and he invited me home with him. There I met Ida, as pretty a little shop girl as one wants to see. Billy said there was always an opening for me, and that times were pretty good. He and Ida had an opium layout, and they asked me to take a smoke. I told him my nerves were not right, and that I had quit. Poor fellow, said Billy. Perhaps it was the sight or smell of the hop, but anyway I got the yen-yen and shook as in an ague. My eyes watered and I grew as pale as a sheet. I thought my bones were unjointing and took a pint of whiskey. It had no effect. Then Billy acted as my physician and prepared a pill for me. So vanished one good resolution. My only excuse to myself was, Human nature is weak, ain't it? No sooner as I had taken the first pill than a feeling of ecstasy came over me. I became talkative, and Billy, noticing the effect, said, Jim, before you try to knock off the hop, you had better wait till you reach the next world. The opium brought peace to my nerves and dulled my conscience, and I had a long talk with Billy and Ida about old pals. They told me who was dead, who were in stir, and who were good. Prosperous. Not many days after my opium fall I got a note from Ethel, who had heard that I had come home. In the letter she said that she was not happy with her husband, that she married to please a father and to get a comfortable home. She wanted to make an appointment to meet me, whom she said she had always loved. I knew what her letter meant and i did not answer it and i did not keep the appointment my relation to her was the only decent thing in my life and i thought i might as well keep it right i have never seen her since the last time she visited me at auburn for some time after getting back from stir i tried for a job but the effort was only half-hearted on my part and people do not fall over themselves in their eagerness to find something for the ex-convict to do even if i had had the best intentions in the world the path of the ex-convict is a difficult one, as I have since found. I was run down physically, and could not carry a hard or do any heavy labor, even if I had desired to. I knew no trade and should have been forever distrusted by the upper world. The only thing I could do well was to graft, and the only society that would welcome me was that of the underworld. My old pals knew I had the requisite nerve and was capable of taking my place in any good mob. My resolutions began to ooze away, especially as at that time my father was alive and making enough money to support the rest of the family. So I had only myself to look out for, and that was a lot, for I had my old habits and new ones I had formed in prison to satisfy. When I stayed quietly at home I grew intensely nervous, and soon I felt that I was bound to slip back into the world of graft. I am convinced that I would never have returned to star or to my old trade, however, if my environment had been different on my release from what it had been formerly, and if I could have found a job. I don't say this in the way of complaint. I now know that a man can reform even among his old associates. It is impossible, as the reader will see, I believe, before he finishes this book, for me ever to fall back again. Some men acquire wisdom at twenty-one, some not till they are thirty-five, and some never. Wisdom came to me when I was thirty-five. If I had had my present experience, I should not have fallen after my first bit, but I might not have fallen anyway if I had been placed in a better environment after my first term in prison. A man can stand alone if he is strong enough and has sufficient reasons, but if he is tottering he needs outside help. I was tottering, and did not get the help, and so I speedily began to graft again. I started in on easy game, on picking pockets and simple swindling. I made my first touch after my return on Broadway. One day I met the kid there, looking for a dollar as hard as a financier. He asked me if I was not about ready to begin again and pointed out a swell moll, big, breezy, and blonde, coming down the street with a large wallet sticking out of her pocket. It seemed easy, with no comeback in sight, and I agreed to stall for the kid. Just as she went into Dennings, which is now Wanamaker's, I went in ahead of her, turned, and met her. She stopped, and at that moment the kid nicked her. We got away all right and found in the wallet over one hundred dollars and a small knife. In the knife were three rivets, which we discovered on inspection to be magnifying glasses. We applied our eyes to the same and saw some pictures which would have made Mr. Anthony Comstock howl. If he had found this knife on the aristocratic lady he surely would have sent her to the penitentiary. It was a beautiful pearl knife, gold-tipped, and must have been a loss, and yet I felt I was justified in taking that wallet. I thought I had done the lady a good turn. She might have been fined, and why shouldn't I have the money rather than the magistrate? The kid was one of the cleverest dips I ever knew. He was delicate and cunning and the best stone-getter in the city. But he had one weakness that made him almost a devil. He fell in love with every pretty face he saw, and cared no more for leading a girl astray than I minded kicking a cat. I felt sorry for many a little working girl he had shaken after a couple of weeks, and I used to jolly them to cheer them up. I once met Kate, one of them, and said with a smile, Did you hear about the kids' latest? Why don't you have him arrested for bigamy? She did not smile at first, but said, He'll never have any luck. My mother is a widow, and she prays to God to afflict him with a widow's curse. One of the Ten Commandments, I replied, says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, and between you and me, Kate, the commandment does not say that widows have the monopoly on cursing. It is a sin anyway, whether it is a man, a girl, or a widow. This was too deep for Kate. Stop preaching, Jim, she said, and give me a drink. And I did. After she had drunk half a dozen glasses of beer, she felt better. Women are queer anyway. No matter how bad they are, they are always good. All women are thieves, or rather petty pilferers, bless them. When I was just beginning to graft again and it was going easy, I used to work a game which well showed the natural grafting propensities of women. I would buy a lot of confederate bills for a few cents and put them in a good leather. When I saw a swell-looking mall evidently out shopping, walking along the street, I would drop the purse in her path, and just as she saw it I would pick it up as if I had just found it. Nine women out of ten would say, it's mine, I dropped it. I would open the leather and let her get a peep of the bills, and that would set her pilfering propensities going. It's mine, she would repeat, what's in it. I would hold the leather carefully away from her, look into it cautiously, and say, I can see a twenty-dollar bill, a thirty-dollar bill, and a one-hundred-dollar bill, but how do I know you dropped it? Then she'd get excited and exclaim, If you don't give it to me quick, I'll call a policeman. Madam, I would reply, I am an honest working man, and if you will give me ten dollars for a reward, I will give you this valuable purse. Perhaps she would then say, "'Give me the pocketbook, and I'll give you the money out of it.' To that I would reply, "'No, madam. I wish you to receive the pocketbook just as it was.' I would then hand her the book, and she would give me a good ten-dollar bill. "'There's a woman down the street,' I would continue, "'looking for something.' That would alarm her, and away she would go without even opening the leather to see if her money was all right. She wouldn't shop any more that day, but would hasten home to examine her treasure, Worth, as she would discover to her sorrow, about thirty cents. Then, no doubt, her conscience would trouble her. At least she would weep, I am sure of that. When I got my hand in again, I began to go for stone-getting, which was a fat graft in those days, when the Lexo Committee was beginning their reform. Everybody wore a diamond. Even mechanics and farmers were not satisfied unless they had pins to stick in their ties. They bought them on the installment plan, and I suppose they do yet. I could always find a laborer or hod carrier that had a stone. They usually called attention to it by keeping their hands carefully on it, and very often it found its way into my pocket, for carelessness is bound to come as soon as a man thinks he is safe. They probably thought of their treasure for months afterwards, at least whenever the collector came around for the weekly installments of pay for stones they no longer possessed. It was about this time that I met General Brace and the professor. One was a Harvard graduate, and the other came from good old Yale and both were grafters. When I knew them, they used to hang out in a joint on 7th Street, waiting to be treated. They had been good grafters, but through hop and booze had come down from forging and queer-shoving to common shoplifting and petty larceny business. General Brace was very reticent in regard to his family and his own past, but as I often invited him to smoke opium with me, he sometimes gave me little confidences. I learned that he came from a well-known Southern family, and had held a good position in his native city, But he was a blood, and to satisfy his habits, he began to forge checks. His relative saved him from prison, but he left home and started on the downward career of grafton. We called him General Brace because he looked like a soldier and was continually on the borrow, but a good story always accompanied his asking for a loan, and he was seldom refused. I've often listened to this man after he had smoked a quantity of opium, and his conversational powers were something remarkable. Many a gun and politician would listen to him with wonder. I used to call him General Brace Coleridge. The professor was almost as good a talker. We used to treat them both in order to get them to converse together. It was a liberal education to hear them hold forth in that low-down saloon, where some of the finest talks on literature and politics were listened to with interest by men born and bred on the East Side, with no more education than a turnip, but with keen wits. The graduates had good manners, and we liked them and staked them regularly. They used to write letters for politicians and guns who could not read or write. They stuck together like brothers. If one of them had five cents he would go into a morgue, gin mill where rock-gut whiskey could be obtained for that sum, and pour out almost a full tumbler of booze. Just as he sipped a little of the rock-gut, his pal would come in as though by accident. If it was the general who had made the purchase, he would say, Hello, old pal, just taste this fine whiskey, it tastes like ten-cent stuff. The professor would take a sip and become enthusiastic they would sip and exclaim in turn until the booze was all gone and no further expense incurred. This little trick grew into a habit and the bartender got on to it, but he liked Colonel Brace and the professor so much that he used to wink at it. I was in this rock-cut saloon one day when I met Jesse R., with whom I had spent several years in prison. I have often wondered how this man happened to join the underworld, for he not only came of a good family and was well educated, but was also of a good, quiet disposition, a prime favorite in stir and out. He was tactful enough never to roast convicts, who were very sensitive, and was so sympathetic that many a heartache was poured into his ear. He never betrayed a friend's confidence. I was glad to meet Jesse again, and we exchanged greetings in the little saloon. When he asked me what I was doing, I replied that I had a mortgage on the world, and that I was trying to draw my interest from the same. I still had that old dream, that the world owed me a living. I confided in him that I regarded the world as my oyster more decidedly than I had done before I met him in stir. I found that Jesse, however, had squared it for good, and was absolutely on the level. He had a good job as a shipping clerk in a large mercantile house. When I asked him if he was not afraid of being tipped off by some central office man or by some stool pigeon, he admitted that it was the terror of his life, but that he had been at work for eighteen months and hoped that none of his enemies would turn up. I asked him who had recommended him for the job, and I smiled when he answered, General Brace that clever harvard graduate often wrote letters which were of assistance to guns who had squared it though the poor fellow could not take care of himself jesse had a story to tell which seemed to me one of the saddest i have heard and as he grew older i found that most all stories about people in the underworld no matter how cheerfully they begin ended sadly it was about his brother harry the story that jesse told harry was married and there is where the trouble often begins When Jesse was in prison, Harry, who was on the level and occupied a good position as a bookkeeper, used to send him money, always against his wife's wishes. She also complained because Harry supported his old father. Harry toiled like a slave for this woman who scolded him and who spent his money recklessly. He made a good salary, but he could not keep up with her extravagance. One time, while in the country, she met a sporting man, Mr. O.B. In a few weeks, it was the old, old story of a foolish woman and a pretty good fellow. While she was in the country, her young son was drowned, and she sent Harry a telegram announcing it. But she kept on living high, and her name and that of O.B. were often coupled. Harry tried to stifle his sorrow and kept on sending money to the bladder he called wife, who appeared in a fresh new dress whenever she went out with Mr. O.B. One day Harry received a letter calling him to the office to explain his accounts. He replied that he had been sick, but would straighten everything out the next day. When his father went to awaken him in the morning... Harry was dead. A file of morphine on the floor told the story. Jesse reached his brother's room in time to hear his old father's cry of anguish, and to read a letter from Harry, explaining that he had robbed the firm of thousands, and asking his brother to be kind to Helene, his wife. Then Jesse went to see the woman to tell her about her husband's death. He found her at a summer hotel with Mr. O.B., and heard the servants talk about them. Jim, said Jesse to me at this point in the story, here is wise counsel. Wherever thou goest, keep the portals of thy lugs open. As you wander on through life, you are apt to hear slander about your women folks. What is more entertaining than a little scandal, especially when it doesn't hit home? But don't look into it too deep, for it generally turns out true, or worse. I laid a trap for my poor brother's wife, and one of her letters, making clear her guilt, fell into my hands. A telegram in reply from Mr. O.B. likewise came to me, and in a murderous frame of mind I read its contents, and then laughed like a hyena. I am sorry I cannot meet you, but I was married this morning and am going on my wedding tour. Au revoir. You ask me what became of my sister-in-law? Jim, she is young and pretty and will get along in this world. But truly, the wages of sin is to her living ashes. It was not very long after my return home that I was at work again, not only at safe dipping and swindling, but gradually at all my old grafts, including more or less housework. There was a difference, however. I grew far more reckless than I had been before I went to prison. I now smoked opium regularly, and had a layout in my furnished room and a girl to run it. The drug made me take chances I never used to take, and I became dead to almost everything that was good. I went home very seldom, I liked my family in a curious way, but I did not have enough vitality or much feeling about anything. I began to go out to graft always in a dazed condition, so much so that, on one occasion, a pal tried to take advantage of my state of mind. It was while I was doing a bit of housework with Sandy and Hacks, two clever grafters. We inserted into the lock the front door key which we had made, threw off the tumblers, and opened the door. Hacks and I stalled while Sandy went in and got $600 and many valuable jewels. He did not show us much of the money, however. The next day, the newspapers described the touch and told the amount of money which had been stolen. Then I knew I had been done by Sandy and Hacks, who stood in with him, but Sandy said the papers were wrong. The mean thief, however, could not keep his mouth shut, and I got him. I'm glad I was not arrested for murder. It was a close shave, for I cut him unmercifully with a knife. In this, I had the approval of my friends, for they all believed the worst thing a grafter could do was to sink a pal. Sandy did not squeal, but he swore he would get even with me. Even if I had not been so reckless as I was then, I would not have feared him, for I knew there was no comeback in him. Another thing the dope did was to make me laugh at everything. It was fun for me to graft, and I saw the humor of life. I remember I used to say that this world is the best possible, that the fine line of cranks and fools in it gives it variety. One day I had a good laugh in a Brooklyn car. Tim, George, and I got next to a Dutchman who had a large prop in his tie. He stood for a newspaper under his chin, and his stone came as slick as grease. A minute afterwards he missed his property, and we did not dare to move. He told his wife, who was with him, that his stone was gone. She called him a fool and said that he had left it at home in the bureau drawer, that she remembered it well. Then he looked down and saw that his front was gone too. He said to his wife, I am sure I had my watch and chain with me but his wife was so superior that she easily convinced him he had left it at home. The wisdom of women is beyond finding out. But I enjoyed that incident. I shall never forget the look that came over the Dutchman's face when he missed his front. I was too sleepy those days to go out of town much on the graft, and was losing my ambition generally. I even cared very little for the girls, and gave up many of my amusements. I used to stay most of the time in my furnished room, smoke and hop, When I went out, it was to get some dough quick, and to that end I embraced almost any means. At night I often drifted into some concert hall, but it was not like the old days when I was a kid. The Bowery is far more respectable now than it ever was before. Twenty years ago, there was no worse place possible for ruining girls and making thieves than Billy McGlory's joint on Hester Street. About ten o'clock in the morning, slumming parties would chuckle with glee when the doors at McGlory's would be closed and young girls in scanty clothing would dance the can-can. These girls would often fight together, and frequently were beaten unmercifully by the men who lived on them in their trade. Often, men were forcibly robbed in these joints. There was little danger of an arrest, for if the sucker squealed, the policeman on the beat would club him off to the beat of another copper, who would either continue the process or arrest him for disorderly conduct. At this time, which was just before the Lexo Committee began its work, there were at least a few honest coppers. I knew one, however, that did not remain honest. It happened this way. The guns had been tearing open the cars so hard that the streetcar companies, as they had once before, got after the officials who stirred up headquarters. The riot act was read to the dips. This meant that, on the second offense, every thief would be settled for his full time and that there would be no square in it. The guns lay low for a while, but two very venturesome grafters, Mac and Jerry, put their heads together and reasoned thus. Now that the other guns are alarmed, it is a good chance for us to get in our fine work. Complaints continued to come in. The police grew hot and sent Mr. F. At flyman, to get the rascals. Mr. F had the reputation of being the most honest detective on the force. He often declared that he wanted promotion only on his merits. Whenever he was overheard in making this remark, there was a quiet smile on the faces of the other coppers. F caught Mac dead to rights and, not being a diplomat, did not understand when the gun tried to talk reason to him. Even a large piece of dough did not help his intellect, and Mac was taken to the station house. When a high official heard about it, he swore by all gods that he would make an example of that notorious pickpocket Mac. But human nature is weak, especially if it wears buttons. Mac sent for F. Superior, the captain, and the following dialogue took place: Captain, what do you want? Mac, I'm copped. Captain, yes, and you're dead to rights, Mac. I tried to do business with F. What's the matter with him? Captain, he is a policeman. He wants his promotion by merit. Even the captain smiled. Mac, I'd give five centuries and five hundred dollars if I could get to my summer residence in Asbury Park. Captain, how long would it take you to get it? Mac, he too was laconic. I got it on me. Captain, give it here. Mac, Mac, "'It's a sure turnout?' "'Captain, was I ever known to go back on my word?' "'Mac handed the money over and went over to the court in the afternoon with F. "'The captain was there and whispered to F, "'Throw him out.' "'That nearly knocked F down, but he and Mac took a car, "'and he said to the latter, "'In the name of everything, how did you hypnotize the old man?' "'Mac replied with a laugh, "'I tried to mesmerize you in the same way, but you're working on your merits.' Mac was discharged, and F. decided to be a diplomat henceforth. From an honest copper, he became as clever a panther as ever shook coin from a gun. Isn't it likely that if a man had a large income, he would never go to prison? Indeed, do you think that well-known guns could graft with impunity unless they had someone right? Nay, nay, Hannah. They often hear the song of split half or no graft. But at that time I was so careless that I did not even have enough sense to save fall money and after about nine months of freedom, I fell again. One day, three of us boarded a car in Brooklyn, and I saw Mark, whom I immediately nicked for his red super, which I passed quickly to one of my stalls, Eddie. We got off the car and walked about three blocks, when Eddie flashed the super to look at it. The sucker, who had been tailing, blew, and Eddie threw the watch to the ground, fearing that he would be nailed. A crowd gathered around the super, I among them, the other stall, Eddie having valmoosed, and the sucker. No man in his senses would have picked up that gold watch. But I did it, and was nailed dead to rights. I felt that the super belonged to me. I had nicked it cleverly, and I thought I had earned it. I was sentenced to four years in Sing Sing, but I did not hang my head with shame this time as I was taken to the station. It was the way of life, and of those I associated with, and I was more fatalist than ever. I hated all mankind, and cared nothing for the consequences of my acts. End of chapter 10